0: So anyways, I'm glad you're all here. My name is Phil, and I am one of the pastors here at Golden Hills. And uh, it's just a really good day to be together. I was so struck when um, being able to sit in worship with the kids leading us in worship. And I was just thinking of the effect it, um, Lord willing, would have on these kids to be able to sing a song about what the Lord is doing. And uh, the fact that people from every age and every race are united. And that's the power of the gospel that's the purpose for which Christ has come is to make a people for himself that consists of people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. And to know that our kids are, being, are leading us in remembering that this is who God is and this is what God has for us is incredible. And so hopefully you were as well as I Um, were just encouraged by that. Today is uh, a little bit interesting. Not only have the kids been leading us in worship, but it's also global outreach. And so I want to make sure that you are aware um, that we have some visiting ministry partners here with us today. And uh, if you want, you can go out and meet them. Dave and Christine are serving at a Christian school in Mexico, and they're going to be out on the plaza. So when you head out there, look to the right by the planner box and they'll be out there. They love to meet you. And uh, just encourage them, let them know Um, that you're just grateful for their ministry and they would just be greatly encouraged. In fact, I believe that they're here in our service with us. There they are waving. Hello. So they're over there. Um, Glad they're here. So I want to make sure that you are aware of that. What we're going to do today is something interesting. It's something that um, has been on my heart for quite some time and it's namely this is that we need to understand what is the motivation for all global outreach. We need to understand what it is that God is concerned for regarding the nations and then we need to become the kind of people that emulate the kind of heart that God has for the nations. God indeed desires that people would come to know him and uh, we need to become people whose heart is also convinced that the world is in need of the gospel. And so what I'm going to do today is actually show us from Isaiah chapter 12 that the greatest motivation for any gospel ministry, global outreach or local outreach or any kind of ministry that we do um, locally is going to be for the glory of God. That's why emblazoned in our purpose statement is for the praise of his glory, for the praise of his glory. But what's interesting is the praising of God's glory is not merely an end of itself. But it also is the source of our greatest joy. Now, this is where it becomes profound. And this is what has struck me over the years. Recently, I had people come and ask me, hey, did you hear about Tiger Woods? And uh, he won the Masters. Isn't it incredible? And I'm thinking, sure, I don't normally watch golf unless I haven't napped in a while. And I really need to sleep. And uh, I was recently asked last night, they said, hey, um, uh, did you happen to see the new Avengers movie? And to which I said, no. Um, yeah. But what I noticed is the, the, the question of whether or not I have seen Tiger Woods or I've seen the Avengers movie. And these people are very excited about it. Did you see it? Did you hear? And they were excited. And when I told them no, each time they said, you need to go watch. You, need, you, know, you know what I'm talking about when people are begging you to go. And I started to realize um, we as human beings, we love to praise things that we care about. We love it. But not only that, we love to invite other people into praising the things that we care about. So we invite people, go watch the movie. I loved it. You'll love it. Go see Tiger. It. it was amazing. I thought it was amazing. You'll think it's amazing. Go to this restaurant, they have great dish, whatever it may be. I liked it, you like it. You see how that works? We praise what we care about. C.S. Lewis has been so informative in my life in terms of this kind of topic. He actually wrote in a book called Reflection on the Psalms about this connection between God's glory, our delighting and praising and enjoying God. And this is what he writes, and I think we have the quote. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is, it is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is complete is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell any, anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. And the reality is we value what we praise. And the praise is incomplete, or the value, the the joy that we have in the thing is incomplete until it is finally expressed. So when we express our pleasure in a movie, By inviting people to see it we are then experiencing our greatest joy when we express the pleasure we have in a sporting event or in a vista which takes our breath away when we express that pleasure we're having in that moment we are experiencing joy being completed in other words until we express our pleasure our joy remains diminished now, if we express the greatness of God, the glory of God, the beauty of God, and the gospel, that is why I often say we can find our greatest joy. But if we refuse to express our pleasure in God, we refuse to express the greatness of, of, of God, we are actually limiting ourselves and diminishing our experience of our greatest joy. You tracking with me? I just blew your minds a little bit. But we know it by experience that it's true. It's true. When you bite into something, when you're at a restaurant and it tastes so good, the first thing you want to do is, do you got to try this? (laughs) That's how it needs to be with God. That is the motivation for global outreach. You have to taste this. That's why psalm 34a says taste and see that the lord is good you've got to taste this it'll blow your mind so let's read isaiah chapter 12 where we're going to piece all these things together hopefully lord willing i see my time this section of scripture this chapter is a whopping six verses it's divided into two sections verses one and two and verses three through six It's divided into two sections identified by the first sentence in verse 1 and the first sentence of verse 4. And what's interesting in each of those cases, the pronoun you is its sign. So we read, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So Father, we ask that you would use this time we have together to accomplish the things for which you seek to accomplish through the ministry of your word. God, as we have read your word, if we have sung it, or as we have been able to now pray it, and hopefully in the minutes to come to preach it faithfully, God, would you use it to accomplish the purposes for which you're sending it. Namely, that we would become the kind of people who are rightly motivated in gospel ministry for the joy of all peoples. So, God, that is your heart since the beginning, since you spoke into existence everything that is you have desired to make from one man all mankind and to choose for yourself from among all mankind those who you desire to make your own people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. And so I pray that you would conform us and our hearts into your heart and your image for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we see in verse one, we see that it says, you will say in that day, you being singular, and then you jump down to verse four and it says, and you will say in that day and that... Pronoun actually is the same pronoun as verse three, which reads, and with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. What's interesting is the pronoun in verse one of chapter 12 is singular, referring to the individual person. That's each of us individually here. But then in verse three and four, it begins to talk about you as plural, which means you as a collection of individuals, as a gathered people. And as I was reading this, I was thinking to myself, what in the world does Isaiah have in mind when he says, in that day? Because it's in that day that there is thanksgiving. It's in that day that there is making known the deeds of the Lord. It is in that day that there's proclamation and singing. So I wanna know, what is that day? Now, to get the answer to this, we need to just kind of zoom out our focus from chapter 12 and to begin to take a lay of the land of the context. And so we look in chapter 10 of Isaiah. In chapter 10 of Isaiah, Isaiah is writing about the judgment of God upon the evils of humanity. And at the very end of chapter 10 in verse 32 and 33, we see that um, God's judgment is likened to deforestation. Look at this, verse 32. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. The judgment of God is portrayed as a gigantic forest with trees that you can see, as, as far as you can see, they're just everywhere, that God comes in with an axe and begins to chop them all down so these, leaves, or these trees have fallen and the felled trees are exposing stumps. You got it in your mind? Can you see it? Now, what's interesting is verse 1 of chapter 11, you have this picture of a forest depleted. Only stumps are left everywhere. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And now all of a sudden you have this picture in the foreground of this one particular stump, which is referred to as the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse. Come on now, church. David's daddy. First and Second Samuel, we preached through that for months. <laughs> Covenants. Ruth. Come on. So now we know that the stump of Jesse refers to the family of David. And from the family of David, in the midst of God's judgment, will come a shoot. A green branch will begin to emerge from the trump of judgment. Now, that's a beautiful depiction because it is anticipating and prophesying that from David, an offspring of David will emerge. And in the midst of judgment, he will bring life. now, what kind of person is this going to be like? Verses two through five. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now the question is, well, who is that in reference to? And the answer is Jesus. And the reason why we know it's Jesus is because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus is baptized, he comes out of the water and descending upon Jesus in the form of a dove is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus later begins to preach and identifies himself, not only with Isaiah 11, but Isaiah 61. And he speaks or he reads the scroll, hands it to the official in the synagogue, sits down and tells everyone the words that you have heard are fulfilled in in your hearing. In other words, I am the guy who Isaiah is talking about. So we have Jesus being prophesied here. Now, what is it like for Jesus to come? It says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Picture that for a moment. Wolf and lamb dwelling together. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now verse 10. In that day. What day? The day in which the offspring of David comes. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire And his resting place shall be glorious. And in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria and Egypt and Pathros and Cush and Elam and Shinar and Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea. In other words, a second exodus is about to happen. So you see, in that day, when the Messiah comes, everything is changed. The prey and the predator are hanging out. Children are handling snakes. You see... Everything just completely undone. It's like the effects of sin and the curse are totally reversed. In that day, not only is all of that happening, but Jesus stands as a signal for the peoples. All the nations will inquire of him, and God will perform this mighty act of collecting his people. The question is, when does that happen? When is that taking place? Many interpreters believe that this is taking place exclusively sometime in the future. And I would say, why do they think that? It's not only because of their reading of scripture, but because they probably watch the Discovery Channel. And they see what I see in the Discovery Channel is not what I see here. And so exclusively in the future. And I would say, no, they're wrong. Here's why I think they're wrong. Because I've read from the Apostle Paul where he wrote in Romans chapter 15. In Romans chapter 15, what the Apostle Paul is doing is defending his ministry to the Gentiles. Remember, many Jews at that time believed that it was wrong to minister to the Gentiles. So Paul defends his ministry to the Gentiles in Romans 15. And starting in verse 8, he says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, meaning the Jews, to show God's truthfulness... In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then he goes on to quote a number of Old Testament texts. And notice the the emotion that is here in verse 10. He defends his ministry with an Old Testament text that reads, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let not the peoples extol him. And let all the peoples extol him. Verse 12, then he quotes Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. In other words, for the Apostle Paul, he knows what Isaiah prophesied. He knew that there would be the offspring of David who would come as the Messiah, who would radically transform the world, even the created world, and would do things which would blow your, your mind in indescribable ways. And the Apostle Paul believed that that had begun during Paul's time. Which is to tell us, brothers and sisters, we need to realize in that day when the Messiah comes, that day has already come. Jesus is the marker of the beginning of a total transformation, a total reversal of the curse. And what God has begun in Jesus' first coming, God will finish at Jesus' second coming. So now we read Isaiah 12, 1. You will say in that day, you will say in the day of the Messiah, you will say in the day in which God visits his people and begins the radical transformation that comes through the preaching of the gospel. You will say in that day, as an individual, that's for us today, I will give thanks to you, Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. And so this is something for all of us individuals, individuals here, since Jesus has come, the day of the Messiah is already here. Now what the, uh, Isaiah is saying is, in that day you will give thanks. But what is the cause of such thanksgiving? What is it that causes us to be thankful? It says, for though you were angry with me, speaking to God, though God was angry with me, your anger turned away. Now, what's important to understand is throughout the Bible, when God's anger is mentioned, it's also connected to God's wrath. Now, this is the part of the sermon where many of you will shuffle in your seat and dislike what is about to be said. Psalm 90, verse 7 and 8 read like this For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. Do you see the connection? By your anger, by your wrath. They're related. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. In other words, it is because of our sin that the wrath of God and God's anger is upon us. Now, I know there's so many people out there that just want to get rid of God's wrath. It would be so much easier and much more pleasant to do so. I was actually listening to NPR this week where there was so-called pastors on there talking about how they are emphasizing God's love because God's wrath has no place in today's society. I'm gonna show you why those are idiots. (laughs) (laughs) Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You see, if we're going to decide that the wrath of God, eh, we don't like it, then we need to take a scalpel to the Bible and cut all that kind of stuff out, and what are we left with? And I will tell you, not much. And the reason I say not much is because... When Isaiah wrote, he says, You will, as an individual, give thanks to the Lord. First reason, for though you were angry with me. In other words, because God was wrathful towards me. And so, in Isaiah's mind, thanksgiving, an aspect of thanksgiving, is first to acknowledge that God has wrath towards sinners. And if we cut out wrath towards sinners, we diminish Thanksgiving. Do you guys connect that? So my thought is, if God wants praise and deserves praise, I'm going to give him praise. And I'm going to praise Him in the way He desires it, because God has all authority and I do not. So I won't diminish God's wrath, as Ezekiel 18:4 says, "The soul that sins shall die." the apostle Paul wrote that the wages of sin is death." And so we, brothers and sisters, sit here and listen to God's wrath and we're thinking to ourselves, I'm not really all that thankful for that. No, you shouldn't be. It's terrifying. It's terrifying to be under the wrath of God. And yet there's more to the verse. Your anger turned away. Your wrath turned away so that you might comfort me. How was God's wrath turned away? And since he's speaking to individuals, I want to start with the individual experience. You as an individual can experience gratitude in your heart towards God as you contemplate the wrath of God because the wrath of God is turned from you, if. If what? Ezekiel 18, verse 30. God says, Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Verse 32. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn, repent, and live. So that begins the gratitude. If you will repent from your sins and turn to God, you will live. That's why Jesus is said to have come in Mark 1.15 and, sa- and he, he speaks like this. The time is fulfilled. Or in other words, the Messiah has come. Now is the day. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Notice it's twofold. Repent. And believe you see there's some people who think they can repent which means they can turn away from their immoral life and become more moral and that will save them no morality saves nobody because as moral as you think you are you're still immoral because your pride is causing you to think you can be moral enough and at the same time it's not just that you believe the gospel Oh, I believe the gospel wholeheartedly (laughs) yeah but have you repented of your sins It's both. You can't say, I believe in God and live like a a pagan. It has to be repent and believe, repent and believe, not one or the other. And if you will repent and believe the gospel, you will have life. Now, here's the beauty. Jesus said in John 3.36, now John 3, John 3, we love John 3. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, And that's what the pastors always quote, God love the world, God love the world, God love the world. And I go, yes, amen. But read the rest of the chapter. (laughs) Verse 36 says this, if you do not believe, the wrath of God remains on you. Wait, wait, wait. So if you believe in Jesus, then the wrath is removed. And if you don't believe in Jesus, the wrath remains. Yes. Uh Uh-oh. Do you see why it's so important that we don't eliminate the wrath? Because if you eliminate the wrath, you don't have the gospel. And if you only focus on love, you don't have the gospel. Because the gospel is wrath, love. Yes. How? Oh, I'm glad you asked. 1 John 4. 1 John 4.10. This is why we never want to separate love and wrath. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. Don't make this about you. But this is love. That God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. If you don't know what that word means, you need to. Propitiation is a big theological word which is included in the New Testament multiple times. And so I encourage you know it. But what it means is this. It is a word that describes Jesus as a sacrifice that takes away sins and the sacrifice that takes away sins is that he himself bore the fullness of the wrath of God. All of God's wrath has been poured out on the person of Jesus. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's called the the cup of God's wrath. And so you imagine Jesus hanging on the cross and you imagine God, the Father, pouring out all of the wrath. And I'm talking, he's getting every last drop and pouring it out on Jesus. Why? Because in his love, he sent Jesus to bear the full wrath of God so that those who repent and believe the gospel will not ever have to experience the wrath of God. Jesus becomes a substitute where he sees us with the wrath of God on us. And we're about to die in our sins and Jesus plucks us off and out away from God's wrath and substitutes himself in our place and bears the fullness of God's wrath for us so that we go free and he's punished in our place. Now if we eliminate God's wrath, what in the world did Jesus do on a cross And not only that, but do we have any, any hope, any comfort that God will receive us into his kingdom? And the answer is the cross is emptied of its power and we have no hope and no confidence that God will welcome us unless the wrath of God has been satisfied by the person of Jesus. So therefore, brothers and sisters, you need to see the propitiation, the sacrifice for sins that Jesus made, That did not make God love us. Because the propitiation for sins, notice the sequence in 1 John 4.10. God loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Love came first. Propitiation came second. Propitiation is not merely that the sins are taken away from you, but it means that the wrath of God has been satisfied to the degree that now instead of you being God's enemy, he welcomes you as his child. Instead of God being against you, he's now for you. Brothers and sisters, if we eliminate the wrath of God, we do two things which I encourage none of us to to want. We diminish thankfulness, Isaiah 12, one, and we diminish love. And I would say, no, 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 let's be fully grateful and fully experience the love of God. Let us never, never jack around with the Bible. Let's leave it and let's embrace the fact that God's wrath is upon sinners. And yet God loved sinners so much that he sent his son to bear the wrath of God for us. Oh, Romans 5 eight. you guys know it. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We love that verse, but remember what comes after. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Verse 10, for while we were, if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by from the wrath of God, by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So what in the world is there to be thankful for? Here's something to be thankful for. We were born as children, by nature, objects of wrath. And unless we repent and believe the gospel, the wrath of God will remain on us. But God has loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus into the world to live the sinless life we couldn't, to be crucified on a cross in order to bear the full wrath of God so that in being satisfied, God the Father will then, for those who believed in Jesus, his death and resurrection, will release them from the condemnation and set them free Now, when we think about that, Romans 8 then comes to mind. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. Brothers and sisters, that is awesome. And that's something to be thankful for. That's why we read in Romans 3 how God is both the Savior and the salvation, how God is both the gift and the giver. Now, this is crucial. This is crucial. When we read in Isaiah 12, 2, Behold, Isaiah says, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. you notice that? When God is your salvation, no fear. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. You notice what Isaiah does not say? God has given me salvation. No. God is my salvation. He in his person is my salvation. And do you remember what Luke 2, 10 through 11 records where the angels are speaking to the shepherds in the field and they say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Do you see this? Good news of great joy for all the peoples. What is the good news? Here it is. For unto you is born in uh, this day, in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. So what is the good news? The good news is Jesus. What is the good news of great joy? Jesus. And what is the good news of great joy? Who is it for? All the people. In other words, Jesus is for all the people so that all the people would have the greatness and the exceeding joy that would satisfy them to no other end. And that great joy, which is for all the people, is great news. And so I would say it plainly, God is the gospel. God is the gospel. The good news is God. Salvation is God. When you get saved, you get God. God. When we read Romans 3, we start to see how beautiful it is. Let's put it together. Oh, no. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. Everyone has the wrath of God upon them. And everyone is justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Look at this. So that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me put it plainly. God is just in that he does not allow sin to go unpunished. But God also is the justifier. The one who pays for sin himself. Let me put it even more plainly God supplied the sacrifice, and God was also the sacrifice. Let me put it even more plainly God was the giver of a great gift, and the gift that God gave was God. Whoa. That means Jesus is our salvation, but also our Savior. He is what we get in the end. That's why we read 2 Corinthians 5.17. Very famous verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And we go, yes. Put that on a memory verse and slap it on your mirror and your car or whatever. We love it. But then the next verse is also important. All this is, look at the three things. From God, origination. Who through Christ, means, reconciled us to himself, the goal. God in the beginning, God is the means, God is the goal. It seems as if God is kind of important. And God has given us the ministry of reconciliation so that in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, the the message of reconciliation reconciliation is a big word which means to be put in right relationship with God God has put us right with him and in so doing he has entrusted to us the message of him putting sinners right with himself which means the one implies the other they're related if you have been reconciled, you are now a messenger of reconciliation. And if you refuse to be a messenger of reconciliation, it begs the question, have you been reconciled? Because the one leads to the other. Now you're starting to see the heart of global outreach. And then we realize if God is the gospel, God has rescued us from his wrath, By sending Jesus, who is God in the flesh, as a propitiation for sins so that we would have right relationship with God. In other words, God made sure that God gets us for God's glory. (laughs) Now, maybe you don't see it yet. Let me connect this salvation in the person of God with our joy in his glory. Oh, here we go. Verse 3 of Isaiah 12. With joy... So that's the distinction. With joy, that's the characteristic. With joy, you all, collectively, as a group gathered together, which is what I would say the church. You, the church, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. What a beautiful metaphor. Throughout the Bible, water is related to life. Salvation in verse 2 is identified with God. So the metaphor reads, we will, we will draw water from the wells of salvation. To put it non-metaphorically, we as the church will draw life from God. With joy, we'll do that. With joy, we draw life from God. How in the world does that work? It's like that because relationship with God is defined by that of joy. Look at this in 1 Peter 3.18. Let me, let me put some connections together for us. You guys ready? First Peter 3.18, a very famous verse. For Christ also suffered once for sins, The righteous for the unrighteous, substitutionary atonement, propitiation, that's what that means. And then the next word is that. And the word that means so that, identifying a purpose, which means Jesus died for us and the purpose for which he died is so that he might bring us to God. So when we say Jesus died on the cross to, to have your sins forgiven, I would say yes and amen, but that's only partially true. Jesus died on the cross to for forgiveness of sins so that you can be brought to God. Because sin is an obstacle between you and God. You don't get God if you got sin. So sin has to be taken away and then you get God. Now what should we expect when we get God? Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's an old children's song where the lyric reads this, like this, joy is the flag that is flown from the castle of your heart when the king is in residence there. When King Jesus is taking up residence into your heart, The flag which identifies that he is there is the flag of joy. And therefore, there cannot be dour Christians. There can be Christians who suffer. There can be Christians who are going through hardship. But there's also the text of Scripture, Romans 5, where Paul says, rejoice in your sufferings. Where Philippians says repeatedly, rejoice, rejoice. Because a Christian who is dour, you have every reason to ask whether or not they are actually Christians. Let me show you why. First Peter chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him, now you believe in him and rejoice with joy. That's an odd thing to say. You rejoice with joy. You are joyfully joyful. You rejoice in your rejoicing. You're happy, happy. Do you see what he's doing here? Emphasis. You can't see God, but you love him. You can't see him right now, but you believe in him. And your believing fills you with an inexpressible and glorious joy. The description of this kind of joy is a joyful joy, it's a rejoicing kind of rejoicing. It's a happiness of happies. What? Why? Verse 9. You are obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your soul. In other words, since your faith is going to result in salvation, your response is joy. Not just regular old joy, but joyful joy. Happiness of happiness. (laughs) that is incredible how do we respond rightly to the gospel it seems as if the right response to the gospel is joy I think one of the best ways to think of it is Psalm 116 verse 12 and 13 this has helped me so much in my life where the writer asks this question what shall I render to God or what should I return to God for all his benefits to me it's a good question like we as Christians, what should we do in response to what God has done for us? How do we respond properly? It says in verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Cup is a metaphor. Remember, we, we with joy are we are going to draw water out of a well. And so we take that same kind of device, the cup or bucket, whatever you wanna call it, and we lift it back up to the Lord who is our salvation and we simply say, God, you've you've saved me, you've brought me to yourself, I'm filled with joy. More joy, please. (laughs) But it's not just more joy, please, it's more of you, please. Because you are my joy. So you, I want more of you. Give me you. Remember the plural pronoun is you all. And so, what that means is this this should be a description of the Christian church. The Christian church should be defined in our gatherings as purposefully Jesus oriented so that Christ is the center. Christ is what we exalt in. Christ is what we proclaim. Christ is who we enjoy. Christ is what we preach. Christ is what we sing. Christ is what we pray. Not this garbage about Jesus is going to give you your best life now and God is some sort of cosmic slot machine. That is not what this is about. You get joy, everlasting joy. Now here, remember what C.S. Lewis says? When God beckons you to give him glory, He is also inviting you to experience joy. Because glorifying God and enjoying God are the same. For you praise what you prize. And our praising and our prizing is incomplete until it's expressed so that when it's expressed, our joy is made full. So how do we express this? And here's our global outreach emphasis. Verse four and five, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, church. For he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Do you see it? The only people who will make an impact in the world, to truly bring the gospel to the nations, are those who go not because they must, but they go because they have a joy which is inexpressible and they can't hold it in any longer. I gotta get it out. I gotta get it out. So Jesus is the good news of great joy for all the people. Jesus is the signal to the nations to come and have life. Jesus is the one who shed his blood to ransom people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. It is Jesus who is to be proclaimed. It is Jesus who is to be... Enjoyed Is Jesus through whom we are ministering to others? It is Jesus that we are seeking to exalt. It is Jesus who we seek to glorify and therefore is Jesus who we seek to enjoy. So brothers and sisters, I'm out of time. Father, I ask that you would do for us what it is we asked at the beginning of the service and then what we're seeing now that you would well up in us this kind of overflowing joy because I know Lord that the joy that you have promised us as Jesus prayed that our joy would be complete it is not complete until we express your glory your greatness your value to us And so I ask that you would cause us as a church to be the kind of people who will go out in joy and share with joy the greatest news anyone could ever know. And so I pray you embolden us as a church that we would become a kind of people who with joy are drawing water from the wells of salvation. Do that for us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.